With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 435. It's titled, Is It Better to Rent or Buy a House? The last few weeks, LaPrell and I have been traveling. We came from Tucson to Idaho, and then we've taken a trip over to the Oregon coast. I usually take an early morning walk wherever I am. So I've taken early morning walks in Sedona, Santa Fe, Afton, Wyoming, Boise, Idaho, and then a number of towns in Oregon, including Bend, Corvallis, Medford, and Klamath Falls. That's just in the last month. Generally, I'm just admiring the houses, admiring the neighborhoods, the nature. And for the most part, because I'm walking so early, there's not a whole lot of people outside walking. Sometimes there'll be some runners or individuals walking their dog, but mostly it's me and individuals experiencing homelessness that tend to be out walking very early. Now, there are multiple reasons for homelessness, and that isn't the topic of today's episode. But one of the primary drivers is the huge jump in housing cost and rent, particularly in large cities. There was an article by three analysts, John Myers, Ben Southward, and Sam Bowman, and, and their thesis was housing costs are the root of many societal problems. And they give evidence of how a lack of housing is driving up prices over the past 40 years. They pull data that shows the average New York City house rose 706% since 1980 compared to 376% for U.S. consumer prices, so double the rate of inflation. San Francisco has seen their houses increase 932% since 1980. In London, home prices are up over 2,100% in the last 40 years. 1,450% increase in Sydney, Australia. And in Ireland, over that same period, we've seen home prices there increase 800%. Now, the rents have also jumped significantly over that same period. What's fascinating about that is housing costs are going up while the cost of many other things haven't. Meyer, Southwood, and Bowman point out that based on the number of hours it would take the median worker in the U.S. to work to buy certain goods, that costs are much, much lower. For example, in 1975, it took 60 hours for the median American worker to purchase a television. In 2013, it was seven hours. A refrigerator took 65 hours for that median wage-earning worker to purchase a refrigerator versus 20 hours in 2013. A treadmill would have cost 18 hours worth of work in 1975 versus six hours in 2013. And a washer-dryer? 67 hours in, 20, in 1975 and 30 hours in 2013. Automobiles are three times cheaper today than they were back 
1975 based on what the median worker earned, but not housing. And as a result, housing is becoming an ever-increasing percentage of household budgets, often requiring both partners or spouses having to work in order to afford a place to live. Home prices have risen even more dramatically since the pandemic. In a number of episodes, we've talked about how the money supply, the cash, checking account balances, purchasing power has expanded by 40% since 2020 due to stimulus to help households because of the pandemic, as well as quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve and other central banks buying bonds. Huge jump in, in cash. And households were wealthier. They could buy more of a house, a more expensive house, combined because interest rates were rock bottom, under 3%. That pushed up the price of houses. And then households reassessed where they wanted to live. Many moved from the city to the suburbs. I know LaPro and I, we made a move during the pandemic from Phoenix to Tucson once we realized that our Phoenix home was just too small for having three adult, adult children that had come home because of the pandemic. They were working and doing their school online. Other evidence of the dramatic increase in home prices, many of them in the South and Southwest. For example, Phoenix, since 2020, home prices have increased 57%, 61% in Austin. 62% in Tampa, and 57% in Charlotte. Overall, National Home Price Index, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index, rose 21% from March 2021 to March 2022. Now, in the past year, price growth has slowed. The Case-Shiller National Home Index is only up 0.7% for the year ending March, and that's because mortgage rates have spiked and that has made houses much more unaffordable. The average mortgage rate right now, 30-year mortgage rate, 6.9%. Going back to 2018, it averaged 4% over that period. And much of the time from mid-2019 through early 2022, it was below 4%. Now it's 6.9%. So with the big jump in home prices, along with much higher mortgage rates, home prices are the least affordable they have been in the U.S. since 1985. And that's based on some work by Ned Davis Research, where they look at the median income family taking out a 30-year mortgage with 20% down and paying the median-priced home in the U.S., the least affordable since 1985. The most expensive housing markets in the U.S., according to Capital Economics, Based on the percent of income that needs to be paid for a mortgage by the households living in that area, San Diego, where the average household is paying 60% of their income toward their mortgage. That's followed by LA, Riverside, San Jose, and San Francisco. The cheapest areas, based on the percent of income going to the mortgage payment, would be Louisville and, and my hometown, Cincinnati followed by Memphis and Indianapolis. Those are where houses are still relatively more affordable compared to the West and the Southeast. Now, if you're in the market for a home, it's not easy to find one. There is, are fewer sales, less inventory. The U.S. home vacancy rate is 0.6%, the lowest since records began back in 1965. 
many homeowners don't want to sell. They don't feel like they have to move because they've locked in a mortgage rate under 4%. And so we've seen overall home sales fall 35% since their peak. Now, prices haven't really fallen very much. They've fallen in some areas of the country, but there's still a lack of inventory. And as we saw, the the longer-term trends, going back to 1980, is for higher home prices. And the primary reason is there aren't enough homes. Some work that I found in the Financial Times showed the number of dwellings, both houses and apartments, per 1,000 inhabitants. The developed country with the lowest supply of homes is Ireland. And that's one reason their home prices have increased 800% since 1980. Second, in terms of a housing shortage, is U.S., followed by the U.K. and the Netherlands. So four countries that have seen their home prices increase dramatically because there just aren't enough homes. The countries that have a much greater supply of homes per inhabitant is France, Italy, Portugal, and Finland. Ned Davis Research estimates that the housing shortage in the U.S. is two and a half million units. And that's based on just a lack of supply and then based on the basically new completions per year is about 1.5 million. But then there's about 200,000 of homes that are scrapped. Some are for vacation homes, but ultimately a two and a half million housing unit deficit. One reason and a primary reason there aren't enough homes are zoning restrictions. Cities, while they want people to move to their city, and many are upset by the rate of homelessness, there definitely is a feeling of not in my backyard. They don't want higher densities in many cases. Now, that's starting to change, but that's been one of the primary reasons that home prices are skyrocketing. There's just not enough homes, and it's not easy to build homes. One area of the, the home market that just isn't being built, are starter homes. Our first home that LaPrell and I bought was a starter home. We bought it in 1993. We paid $72,000. It was a two-bedroom Cape Cod in Kettering, Ohio. It was about 900 square feet on the main level. It had an unfinished basement and a fairly unfinished attic. That would be equivalent to purchasing a $150,000 home today. And if you could, that'd be great, but that's incredibly rare to find $150,000 home, definitely not in Kettering. Today, only about 8% of new single-family homes are less than 1,400 square feet. That compares to 70% or more in 1940s. Now, homeowners want more amenities, so homes are getting bigger, but it isn't just because of demand. There is a lot of demand for starter homes. The problem is the, the cost of the lots The land itself has gone up, as well as the fees that builders have to to pay. For example, many cities have impact fees, and those impact fees are a fee assessed on new home builds, as well as new apartment builds that go toward funding city parks or funding additional infrastructure. An example of a a home builder that uh, was in an article in the New York Times on starter homes in Oregon says a, a lot may cost $100,000 and then permits are another forty dollars to $50,000. There could be a tree that needs to be removed. 
for $16,000. And so those costs add up. And so what home builders are having to do is build bigger homes in order to actually make a profit on the house. Jerry Conter, a builder in Savannah, Georgia, said, it's not that I don't want to build entry-level homes. It's that I can't produce one that I can make a profit on and sell to that potential purchaser. Economists Giles Duranton and Diego Puga looked at the, the cost of regulation, of not increasing the density, and they focused on New York, that if density in New York, what was allowed historically in terms of additional dwelling units, more apartments, etc., the city could double in size to 40 million, and it would have similar density as Paris. And other cities, such as the Bay Area, Boston, Los Angeles, if they increased their density, more people could move there, and that would actually increase economic growth because of the interaction of households, of ingenuity, technology. Potentially, overall U.S. GDP could increase by 9%, according to their study, and average income could go up. But there is room for houses, but the restrictions can be incredibly severe. There was another article in the New York Times that my son shared with me about Berkeley, where he lives, and just the fight to, to build some apartments around one of the, the metro stations that have been going on for decades. It's incredibly difficult to build in some places, and that results in higher home prices. Now, things are starting to change, particularly in California. In 2016, California started to allow building of additional dwelling units. These are sometimes called casitas, mother-in-law suites, granny flats, but they're an additional rental unit that can be put in the backyard. And as I understand it, the, the state basically passed this and it overrode any local regulation against that. And they're starting to see thousands and thousands of additional housing units in California because of that. You know, prior to this legislation and other legislations, I saw one report that apartments were technically illegal in 75 to 94% of the residential areas in the cities. And I just took a survey for the community we live in in Tucson, and they were addressing the housing units and, and asking what type of housing units we would want in, in our community. And I, I said, Yes, I'd want additional dwelling units. I would be fine with that. I would be fine with small houses. When it came to apartments, I wasn't so sure because of the additional traffic. But, I, you know, in some ways, it's being hypocritical. We, I should have, I should have, and afterward, I wish I could have resubmitted the survey. I should have said yes for more apartments in our community because that is what it will take to solve the housing crisis in the U.S. and around the world. It is more supply, more flexible zoning, additional dwelling units, and it'll take time. But with a two and a half million unit deficit in the U.S., over time, as more units come online, that will keep housing prices from increasing dramatically. Now, the one good news on the housing front is the number of apartments under construction is at an all-time high. There's about a million apartments around the U.S. that are coming online, multifamily units. And as a result of this new supply, the, the rental vacancy rate, while still below average, 
is now around 6.5% compared to the long-term average of 7.3%. And with that supply, that's actually pushed the price down of multifamily housing units. And so that gets to our question, should you rent or should you buy? For many years, I thought, well, it just makes sense to, to buy. That was the American dream. But my, my sons and I, we've been having this discussion. They both rent, we own, and in many ways, they think they want to continue to rent. They see an advantage to renting. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Let's look at the numbers, both globally, but also what I've seen in my own life since we bought that first home back in 1993. I looked at two academic studies that looked at what was the average increase in basically rate of return for owning a home over longer term periods. Now, we've talked about this huge increases in some cities, but that's not everywhere. And these studies go back to 1900, or in some cases, 1950. But both, both studies were con fairly consistent. The average capital appreciation on a home, net of inflation, so real basis is about 1%. The one study compared properties in UK, the other looked at country, 16 developed countries around the world. And they both found about a 1% per year real return. But the second study also, well, they both did, but the second study is the one I quote, said the returns are actually higher than that. Because if you own a house, 
and you rent it out, you get the income. So maybe it's only appreciating 1% real per year, but if you're getting the rent. And so they calculate, including the rental income, that the rate of return since 1950 for owning a house was 11.9% annually and 7.1% on a real basis. But there's a big caveat. And you know this if you own a house. There's expenses that come with owning a house. There's the maintenance cost to keep it maintained. There's homeowner's insurance. There's property taxes. There's mortgage interest. And because it's so difficult to actually get accurate data to calculate the rate of return, that 11.9% nominal rate of return ignores all expenses. The other problem is it's comparing houses over different years, but we know the housing stock has changed. The quality has improved to some extent because at least the houses are bigger than they were. And they don't adjust for the fact that the average home is now bigger. So part of that 12% annualized return is a recognition of that's across all the houses. So I thought it would be an interesting analysis, at least for me, to figure out, well, what about in our case, LaPrille, in our case? We've owned 14 houses as primary residences since 1993. So that's about a house every two years. We move a lot. And that, those are, will be homes in Ohio, Idaho, and Arizona. And it doesn't include homes that we just bought to be fixer-uppers and to sell. That, that There were several of those, so I'm not even including that. And I'm not going to include the, the two homes we have now, our cabin as well as our home in Tucson, because we haven't sold them, so we haven't realized the gain. So just focusing on the 14 homes that we bought and sold, our total realized gain before tax was $201,000 across all 14 homes. That includes $96,000 that we lost on a new build that we did in Rexburg, Idaho. We moved into that house pretty much near the top of the housing market in 2005. I thought we were doing okay. We built it for less than $100 a square foot, but we, we sold it for $80 a square foot in 2013. So we lost close to $100,000 on that. But we gained over $200,000 on our home and farm that we sold in Teton Valley, Idaho. So if we look at the gains and losses, in the early years, the gains weren't that great. It might have been $10,000 gain when we moved from Ohio to Idaho. We lost on that house, but collectively $201,000 gain. But then there's cost. Over that 27-year period, we've paid an estimated $69,000 in property taxes, and that's after taking account the tax deduction for property taxes. So that's net of the tax deduction, $69,000, $31,000 in homeowner's insurance. We estimate that we've spent $59,000 on home maintenance, repairs, and, and lawn mowers. It would include lawn service when we've had that. It would include mowing it ourselves. We didn't, I didn't count for my labor mowing it, but I did take into account the John Deere tractors that we've owned and then sold. And then there was $138,000 in interest that we paid. Again, that's after taking the federal tax deduction for interest. So combined, those expenses and a $201,000 gain, that equates to a $96,000 loss or the total cost of home ownership, including the capital appreciation, minus all the expenses from 1993 to 2020. Now, that was a 27-year period, and so it's about $3,600 per year it cost us to live in a house. 
Now, we could compare that to renting. That's only about $300 a month. So if we could rent for $300 a month or less, we would have been better off renting. Except there's one big caveat. We had capital tied up in houses that got us that $201,000 gain before expenses. That's capital that could have been invested elsewhere had we rented. And in some extent, the capital was pretty big because we paid off our mortgage in 2010. So there's 10 years there where we didn't have a mortgage. So all the capital was in the house and the farm. And I estimate based on if I had earned 5% per year on that capital, that's an additional $450,000. Essentially, opportunity cost because we had invested in houses and it wasn't invested in stocks or bonds or other assets. So if we add the $450,000 capital drag from not having invested in other assets, plus the $96,000 loss in terms of the gains plus the expenses, that's $546,000 over that 27-year period that it cost to, to own a house. So $20,222 per year, the total cost of home ownership including the house itself, as well as the give up of not being able to invest that capital in other areas. That equates to about $1,685 per month, which means if we could have rented for less than $1,685, we would have been better off renting. But if our rent was more than $1,685 per month on average, we would have been better off owning. Now, that's just us. and. Probably in our case, we would have been better off owning because of the size of some of the houses, rent potentially would have been more than $1,685 a month. The other thing to consider is this doesn't include the gain. Well, I know the gain that we have in our Idaho cabin is meaningful because properties in Teton Valley have gone up so much. We don't have a gain in our house in Tucson at this point. So it excludes our existing homes. That's just one example. But it wasn't necessarily overwhelmingly for buying or renting. It isn't a clear-cut case. It depends on the environment that you're purchasing in. In our case, we built a house and lost money on it. But in the case of our farm, we bought at a more opportune time. And so when you buy is very important in terms of where we are. And given the affordability issue right now and the housing shortage for single-family homes, while the number of apartments coming online, it could be more advantageous right now to, to rent. There's also the, the flexibility issue. My sons and I were talking about, you know, is it easier to move if you're renting and break the lease contract, or is it easier to move if you own a house? It depends. Certainly, renting can be advantageous in terms of just the cost of maintaining it. My son mentioned that in, in the apartment that they're at, how quickly the maintenance team, which is very, very good, will come and fix anything. Whereas I know here at our cabin in Idaho, just getting somebody out here, we know we're so far out up in the mountains, it's incredibly expensive to get somebody to come and, and make a repair. So does it make sense to rent or to buy? It, it depends on what type of lifestyle that you want, how much flexibility you want, and it also depends on where you live. We can look at what is the cost of rent, of monthly rent versus the cost of owning a home, assuming there is a home available 
to own. But recognize that when you own a home, and the total return is going to depend on certainly the home appreciation, which is average 1% real across much of the developed world per year. But in other areas, it's been higher than that. And then it's going to depend on what your costs are. What are the taxes? What is the insurance? And what is the ongoing repair to maintain the home? When I think of all the work that we've done on the homes to make only $200,000 over all those years, a lot of those homes were fixer-uppers, and we did a lot of work on them, and yet could have made a lot more investing in the stock market over time. So ultimately, it depends on the life you want, where you live, whether renting is more advantageous or buying a home. That then is episode 435. Thanks for listening. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.